What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, back in the booth with Pete McKenzie, Gabby Magnuson, Jake Dello, and I just flew back from Korea, and boy, are my arms. I'm not even going to say it. Never mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> never mind. It's, but I am tired. Um, We're back in the Al-Qaeda booth. Yes, yes. Uh, thank God. So the trip was worthwhile. So I know alliance management stuff inside and out. I know Korea stuff inside and out. I follow all this stuff mm. all the time, write about it all the time. And still, I come away from like a week and a half in Korea having learned a lot, like a lot of insights. It's shocking how you can keep learning. Like it's a reminder to get out of, of the booth, out of the office once in a while. This is Van's academic pitch. There's, there's a... Lifelong learning. That's right. It's fundamental. So... The big shit. So this is this is like top of the headline news stuff. And it just happened to coincide with when I was there. And we missed a bunch of craziness all over the place. Uh, Secretary of Defense firing the Secretary of the Navy for trying to preserve the rule of law and military justice and order because Trump's a fucking nitwit. Yeah. So much happening with impeachment. I just want to jump to... Uh, telling you about some basic insights from the trip because mm. I think they'll work well with uh, some of the stuff we're going to talk about this episode. So um, the theme that I got from uh, Korean officials that I talked to on the left and the right uh, across the board was bumbling incompetence of U.S. policy. We are, for the first time, facing questions from you know loyal allies, client states, questioning our, our strategic judgment. So the normal thing is like, particularly the the smaller, uh, the patron to the client, the question is always like, are you going to fulfill your promise? Are you going to do what you said? Are you taking us seriously? Yeah. There, the, there's a f- continuous fear of abandonment, right? Mm. What we're seeing right now is, and then in there's a classical alliance dilemma where allies are always caught either fearing abandonment by the ally or fearing being entrapped by the ally, mm. right? And what we're facing right now is both in Korea, which is amazing because that doesn't happen. Yeah. You are, you're as it's, that is why it's a dilemma. You're like in one headspace or the other, we have managed through sheer force of mind fuckery, incoherence to create to engender abandonment and entrapment fears at the same time. And so there, there were uh, one official I talked to referred to it as, as double trouble. Oh and I was like, what do you mean by that? And he goes, well, um, you see, we're being extorted, as you know, because Trump has asked for a 500% increase in cost sharing for the privilege of U.S. bases in South Korea. Thank you, by the way. But 500% is extortion. Yeah. And it comes with a narrative that we're not doing enough, that we're not worth having bases in for. So you don't value the allies. Mm. On the other hand, you are asking us at every level of your government to uh, sign on to your so-called Indo-Pacific strategy to confront China. You want us to make security contributions outside of the Korean Peninsula, throughout the region, in uh, FONOPs in the South China Sea, etc. There's all this talk now about ground-launched missiles that are long, that are of long range enough to, to hit China. They're super concerned about this. All of this is part of like a very rivalrous, confrontational Indo-Pacific strategy. And th- so the U.S. is like twisting South Korea's arms 
um, at all levels of government to get them more involved in that fight. Mm. And so on the one hand, they're questioning the wisdom of the strategy itself. Um, is that the right, is that, is, is pursuing this Indo-Pacific strategy in confrontation with China, is that the right move? Or are you deteriorating the security environment in the region? Are you making our security situation worse by virtue of your strategy? That kind of questioning of our judgment has never happened. And then at the same, it's happening at the same time of you guys aren't worth a shit and who needs you and, and also pay me. Oh my God. <laughs> it don't, they don't go together. Yeah. There's, this is, and like, I feel like we've said this before, but like the U U.S. policy undermines itself mm. under Trump. It is internally incoherent and externally incoherent. Um, and so the result is that you're increasing risk for your allies and partners. You're making it harder to do stuff for yourself in the region. Anti-alliance sentiment in South Korea right now is, is considerably up. People still generally favor the alliance, but the alliance was golden in mm. the Obama years. It had never been as close as it had been then. And so we've squandered a bunch of political capital and we've actually helped create anti-alliance sentiment which is so just frivolous mm. and it, you, you're throwing away political capital, you know? Um, and that's in addition to the incoherence, the risks, the conservatives are talking about getting nukes. Fuck. We'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that later in the episode. You know, the two funny things uh, I'm surprised by a little bit is that impeachment was not that big of a deal to them. They were sort of hopeful about it. Like, <laughs> oh, maybe we can get rid of the Trump problem. <laughs> they like saw impeachment kind of as a good thing. Yeah, fingers crossed. Like either either you distract him enough that he takes his eyes off of you, which is a good thing, or you get rid of him entirely, right? Yes, um, it's more of a mixed bag in in Japan, and I have a Japan trip um, in a couple months that's going to do the same thing. But in Korea, it was like seen as basically a positive. And then the other thing, although it did add to like uncertainty, was just all over the place. Yeah, and that certainly adds to the uncertainty. Um, the other thing was like. They took note of Trump's betrayal of the Kurds and the Turkey green light in Syria. Yeah. They, they, they were aware of it for sure. They were concerned about it, but it was kind of like uh, pouring water on a sponge that was already fully soaked. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't really register as like, that's what makes them think the U.S. is going to defect or yeah. entrap them or whatever, like fuck them over. It was just like, well, that's a problem, but it's like, get in line problem because there's yeah. like a f 99 other problems right behind right in front of you and everyone knew trump was capable of that when he did it that's why it was i mean it was an outrage but it wasn't you know a debilitating shock to the system because everyone kind of knew that this was a, a possible kind of outcome yeah yeah one thing that they did say was like they did not when when Trump used to say the free rider stuff about allies, like basically since the fucking eighties, yeah. When they when they heard that on the campaign trail, they sort of dismissed it as domestic politics. Oh. They did not take it so seriously. Now they think they misjudged Trump. He really does believe this stuff. Because obviously he does believe this stuff. Yeah, totally. And so now they're like, we fucked up. But I don't know what differently they might have done if they took it seriously. In light of all that, do you think um, Trump signing the Hong Kong bill, the one that I think just got passed through like yesterday, day yeah. before, yeah, do you think that's going to have any impact in like trying to uh, make things well, better? Quotation marks. I don't know. So this is the problem. Like the, the Hong Kong bill was veto proof. Hmm. So Trump signing, like Trump can't get credit for, it doesn't reflect anything in Trump's 
ideology because it was impossible for him yeah. not. Yeah, to. he couldn't <laughs> not sign it by law. Like um, it was an expression of the people. It was an expression of Congress, overwhelmingly I mean, it, bipartisan. Like, it, I think there was literally in the entirety of Congress there was one vote against it from a single representative. Yeah, fucking idiot. And I mean, and Trump had said only a couple of days before that, like. He might veto it. He didn't want to sign it yeah. because he doesn't support the protesters, basically. He doesn't support democracy. We stand with the protesters. <laughs> we also stand with Xi Jinping. That was, yeah, th- that was exactly what he like, said. Direct That's, quote. He's not paraphrasing. That's really... Like, he's... <laughs> <laughs> just, it, it, is, it boggles the mind. <laughs> so, yeah. And so the Hong Kong protests also, like, it didn't come up... So when, when I'm meeting with people, I'm meeting with elites. Yeah super hierarchical society, right? Like decision-making of government is not happening in the streets. Um, And the elites are super insulated. It's like a 1% kind of society. What I did see a lot though was like protests in the streets. And it, uh, I gave a talk, I gave a couple talks at uh, Hanguk University for Foreign Studies. And they had um, incidents on campus while I was there where South Koreans and um, Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong diaspora, is. yeah, were there clashing with mainland Chinese students. So there was actual violent incidents in South Korea over Hong Kong yeah. at a mass level. But no, I mean, the elites are like, they don't care. Yeah, they're worried about the US right now. Right. So it's interesting that like this stuff ends up mattering, but like who you're talking to matters, where you are matters, mm. what you see to be your reality in Korea very much depends on like, you know. Are you, are you focused on mass or elites? Yeah. You know, what kind of problems are you focused on? But it's all there. Let's move into prediction market. Basically, we get Van to predict shit. We laugh at it. We'll track it. We'll tell you how it goes. And it is, I'm really sad to say, our first update of Van's predictions starts with the fact that Van was incorrect. Benny Gantz. Israel is a fucking shit show. That's why. Yeah. To be fair, to be fair. <laughs> Predicting Israel was our first mistake. Um, Benny Gantz was unable to form a government in Israel after Netanyahu had already tried. So we're, I think, a week into the 21-day period where it's just a, a free-for-all in the Neset. So question to you, Van. Will there be someone in the Neset who can succeed and form a government, or will this go to another election? I, I think there's going to be another election because... No, but yeah, like if Benny Gantz couldn't pull it together, who is? Yeah. And then also Netanyahu's doing the like fake news yeah. thing and he still commands a certain amount of loyalty despite being like just flagrantly corrupt. He's and also so, been, had, had charges presented on corruption. So. Yeah. Well, so, and so he's, he's, he's going to be his own resistance as much as possible. Yeah. To prevent anybody else from getting a majority. And the reason that matters is in Israel, so long as you're prime minister, you can't be convicted of, I think it is convicted of corruption charges or charges just full stop. Um, So, so long as Netanyahu remains prime minister, he's immune to the charges of corruption that have been presented to him. The second he stops being prime minister, that dynamic will change and he becomes personally liable for what he's done. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I hope comes out of the Trump era is like a collective lesson learned that Mm. maybe we shouldn't super empower our executives. Mm. Like, (laughs) let's not have people be above the law. Just just, just a a thought. The incentives are a little bit weird. Yeah. Um, Okay, so secondly, uh, we've seen a huge number of protests uh, across 
the Middle East generally. Will the ongoing anti-government protests in Iraq to take a specific country cease before the end of 2019? Cease? Like end? Like end. Um, Disperse. I'm going to say they will not end before 2019, uh, in part because I've been seeing that there's violence happening. Once violence starts happening, this is like a Hong Kong thing too. Like yeah. Once violence starts happening, it's like a Pandora's box. It's usually also evidence that like nobody's in charge. And if nobody's in charge, then like how do you stand down the crowd? Yeah. You know, This is going to go on for a while. And we're seeing it spread. I mean, you've been seeing it in Lebanon and throughout the Middle East as well. So it's clearly not an individual thing. Um, and then thirdly, drawing on your recent trip, Will Seoul and Washington come to any sort of agreement regarding shared military costs before the end of 2019, or will things continue to escalate? Not before the end of 2019. I don't even know if in 2020. I mean, like the what I what I heard confidentially, which I, I'm I'm going to treat that as non-attribution, not yeah, not off the record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Since I'm going to talk about it, <laughs> what I heard confident, what I heard uh, for non-attribution was that conservatives were of a mind that like, look, the alliance is so valuable to them that they would be willing to absorb in a, in a awful take it in the ass scenario, maybe 200% increase in costs. And that's, that's $2 billion. Um, that's I mean, that's, a, that's, that's an insane jump. Yeah. Like unprecedented, beyond unprecedented. 5X is a, f- a f- Fucked on running a train. This is impossible. Who would who would who would consensually enter this, right? And that's the people who are like the most rabidly pro-alliance, right? So, um, and then where the liberals are on this, it's like who the fuck knows? Yeah, the right in South Korea has long accused the left of South Korea of being trying to get rid of the alliance anyway, and there is a like undertone of kind of wanting independence from the U.S., independence from, like, everybody, basically. Um, And so what Trump is doing kind of plays into the hands of that view, but it's it's always been up for debate whether the current president, Moon Jae-in, actually is of that mind. Right. Because he seems more pragmatic. He's definitely said lots of pro-alliance stuff um, up to this point. So it's, it's hard to tell what what's going to happen here on the south korean side doesn't look promising yeah well that's um very quick daily dose of terror for you we'll see how we go from here let's jump into stay off twitter where we create the best and worst of twitter so that you don't have to and i I think i'll I'll go first i've got a good one um and this one comes from david from who's a and a writer at The Atlantic, and I think an editor at The Atlantic. And his tweet was, the whole point of resigning on principle is lost if you keep it a secret. Uh, and then he follows that up by saying, there's resigning on principle, and then there's, I'm getting out of here before the criminal enterprise goes sour and and uh, implicates me, right? And so those are two very different things. And I think that you know says a lot about the dynamic in Washington at the moment, where you're looking at... People like John Bolton, people like Jim Mattis, where there are very obvious policy differences between those people and the president. And those policy differences certainly played a significant part in pushing them out of office. But also, after resigning or after being fired, they have stayed eerily quiet, apart from cracking a few jokes at kind of like Washington, New York elite dinners. 
And when you are staying quiet, when you refuse to testify, or you even refuse to speak publicly about your concerns, Mm -hmm. then the whole idea of resigning on principle just doesn't stack up. And it just becomes an ass-covering exercise. I think that really clarified my thinking about the kind of behavior of those kind of former officials. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know if it's always been like this, but Washington right now, the the two driver, like motivational drivers of Washington right now are fear and opportunism. Yeah. it's That's it. Yeah. And like n- the idea of nobility is on the sidelines. Mm. And a lot of people who are most likely candidates of nobility, like that are doing the responsible thing, you would, in this case, it would be like a Bolton, like a Mattis. They're proving by their own unwillingness to yeah. speak truth to power that like they're part of either fear or opportunism. Mm. With Bolton, it's clearly opportunism. It was not a massive surprise. Yeah, yeah. And with Mattis, like, he fucking throws shade at Trump in a personalistic way, but he won't speak out on criminal activity or, like, what he has seen that actually threatens the United States by this guy. Like, So Jim Mattis' argument is that um, as a military man, he shouldn't speak out against the presence of the United States. Um, and, you know, you do your duty and then you get out. That doesn't makes sense. Unless you're getting paid sums of money to crack a joke at his expense. Yeah. That's speaking out against him. Yeah, but I it mean, also like it also doesn't stack up on the most basic level because Jim Mattis is no longer a military man. He took a civilian job and he is now a retired civilian. But also even when he was in the military, even before he was head of the Defense Department, he spoke out against President Obama. A lot. A yeah. lot. Like that's how he he gained his prominence, right? Yeah. And so it doesn't make sense the kind of staying silent in the face of high crimes and misdemeanors yeah. that he's experiencing now. It's so weird. Yeah, I don't get it. Um, so that was a clarifying uh, tweet for me. Um, and the second one is from Brett McGurk, who's the Payne Distinguished Lecturer at Stanford. And Brett links to uh, a bit of news that I found really amusing and that we've covered a little bit of this um, in previous episodes. And Brett says, 10 days after Erdogan visits Trump in the White House, Turkey flies NATO aircraft to test its new Russian S-400 missile system as Turkish-backed extremists reportedly continue operations in northeast Syria. Embarrassing. And I I mean, it's hard to overstate how insane this is, that Turkey, a member of NATO, is using NATO equipment to enhance the capabilities of its Russian-purchased anti-aircraft missile system. It's the biggest of middle fingers, yes. Immediately after a White House visit. Yep. It is fucking mental. Yeah. Also, you cannot overstate enough how much I predicted that Turkey would acquire the Russian S-400 system. Let me just balance out the fucking Benny Gantz news. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So this is not a surprise. Yeah, yeah. Turkey is acting more and more like an enemy of the US, which suggests that at a minimum, uh, they need to be purged of NATO or relegated into some different status because they do not qualify by any practical measure, the like attack on one is an attack on all. Yeah, that's like there's no scenario where we're going to come to Turkey's defense in yeah. the foreseeable future. It makes the alliance a joke. Yes, yes. And the whole point of bringing Turkey into NATO and putting them on the kind of wait list for the EU was that they were sort of marginal about a decade ago, and that you were hoping that by bringing them into the alliance and by bringing them into the EU, 
that you'd accelerate that kind of bit, process yeah. of development. It was a bit. And that bit has failed. Yeah. And when the bit fails, you have to cut your losses and run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had some tweets as well, Ivan. Yeah. Um, actually, both of these are from uh, very good friends, sort of mentors. I don't know. I, I don't know if I do mentors. But if I did mentors, these guys would be mentors. Um, one is Mike Mazar, who's at the Rand Corporation. Probably like the most valuable intellectual at a place that's just stacked with intellectuals. Mm. Um, Brilliant guy. And uh, the tweet is in reference to the U.S. withdrawal from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, INF Treaty. So uh, five-second background, uh, we withdrew from the INF Treaty because Russia has this long track record of non-compliance. And the treaty was supposed to prevent either of us from developing and deploying intermediate-range ground-launched missiles. So stuff that's between like 500 and 5,000 kilometer range missiles. Um, We can have longer range shit than that. We can have shorter range shit than that. Um, And we can have that same range of missiles if it's fired from the air or from the sea, just not ground launched. And so it was like a marginal reduction of uh, risk. This is what you do with arms control, right? And so because of Russian noncompliance, the Trump administration was going to withdraw. The noncompliance goes back a ways, you know, Obama and earlier. But um, we decided it was in our best interest in previous eras to stay in the treaty because like... You want to keep the conversation going. Yeah, yeah. And also like there was a question about like what would be the utility of getting rid of the treaty, right? Mm. And so for the Trump administration and the sort of hawkish Asia hands in Washington... The reason to get out of the treaty is so that we can develop intermediate intermediate range missiles for China um, or against China. And so the whole point of getting out of INF was to develop new intermediate range ground launch missiles for uh, for Asia. And because they're ground launched, you have to put them on the ground somewhere. Mm. That's the nature of ground. That's how it works. Right. (laughs) And um, the dilemma is... Nobody wants these fucking missiles. Yeah. That was one of the things that came out of my talks in South Korea. Um, the Australians preemptively rejected the idea of hosting the missiles. Japan, in a pinch, if they were forced to, might accept them, but it's going to be at like a high political cost, and mm. they've, they've very clearly s- suggested they don't want them. And so in that context, Mazar tweets, the future history of this. Um, U.S. ditches INF treaty to send missiles to Asia, discovers almost nobody will host them, alienates the few who might host them, realizes it can't afford that many of the missiles, um, but a lot would ruin stability anyhow. So it ends up buying 150, bases them in Kansas. Great strategic move. That's that's what's fucking happening here. This yeah. is this this is like the idiocracy. It's it's succinct. It's pithy. It's satirical. But it's dead on balls accurate. Mm. Like this, <laughs> we're we are destined to do things that undermine ourselves at great cost to everybody, including ourselves. Mm. Power projection is why you're doing this. Yeah, like you want missiles in Asia. Power projection, by its nature, requires forward presence and access and bases, especially for ground launched shit. But just in general, the principle is like, if you want power projection, you need friends. If you need friends, you don't extort them and treat them like shit. Hmm. And so we are literally undermining ourselves. You learn this stuff in the playground at kindergarten. This isn't complicated stuff. It's just making friends and keeping them, right? 
Yeah. And we're going to end up wasting a lot of money on missiles that we that get based in Kansas. You think the next president of the U.S. ever just wakes up the next day, looks at what <laughs> like shit like this and is like, oh, fuck, this is what I'm going to have to inherit. How Dude, do I fix the next this? president <laughs> is going to get a fucking flaming bag of shit yeah. on their yeah. doorstep. I feel so bad for the next president. Mm. Just in general, there's a lot of there's huge deficits, like political capital deficits, uh, managing image deficits, returning to treaty deficits, like mm. so much time and effort is going to be spent recouping what was lost. You know, I don't even know if it's possible. We'll find out. What will President Buttigieg do? Look, I'll take him over Trump. I'll take him over Trump. <laughs> and then the other one is from Vipin Narang um, at a podunk school called MIT. He's, he's You might not have heard of it. Yeah, yeah. He's a real smart nuke guy. He tweeted, um, we will look back at 2019 as the year where we allowed the new nuclear age to emerge. Or no, he says, will we look back? That was all, that was all a question. I already fucked it up. <laughs> Should we just yeah. start <laughs> No going back. Um, and then he lists um, a number of, of things that suggest that we've entered a new age, right? One, INF treaty gone. Two, last chance to slow North Korea down, gone. Three, Iran nuclear deal, gone. Four, new start on life support. Five, Saudi nuclear program began. Six, South Korea quietly decided to think about going nuclear. Amendment to six, all of our allies under extended deterrence quietly questioned whether to start going nuclear, which is <laughs> is true. That's fucking, even Australia. Australia. Dude, they fully acknowledge they don't face any direct threats mm. and they're still like, well, maybe we should go nuclear. I mean, a they're, large... they're, they're fucking like their strategic community is like dwelling on this for real. Yeah. A little bit of that is just like their government is currently dominated by people who are insane. But that said, it is still crazy. There's an, intelle there's an intellectual community that has like sort of supported the yeah. notion for a long time, but like they've been bought out. Of, one, you know, this is not in the pop, in the masses, there's no yeah. love for this. But also like they've been bought out of the idea by US extended deterrence, mm. by the US nuclear umbrella that has alleviated those voices or quieted those voices. And now when all of that credibility is in doubt, of course, predictably, those voices get louder. And if Australia is doing it, you know everyone else is thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, big in South Korea, too. Um, what I was told repeatedly is that if South Korea goes nuclear, Japan goes nuclear the next day. So um, this shit changes very quickly. This is... So uh, I teach Paul Bracken the second nuclear age... The book is like, I don't know, 15 years old now or something. Uh, but he talks about how starting in like the late 80s, early 90s, we entered into a nuclear age that like normal people basically don't even realize we're in, mm. where the the barriers to proliferation are lower for a number of reason reasons. And so we have we, we're gonna see and the the logic of like mutually assured destruction is not quite the same for small states with small arsenals as it is for like the US and the Soviet Union. So like the reasoning behind getting nukes is in many ways like more compelling in this new age and more dangerous. Um, and as it's more dangerous, there are actually more incentives to get nukes overall. And this is the age that we live in, the second nuclear age. 15 years later, we have one of our foremost nuclear experts, Vipin, being like, maybe we are entering into a new nuclear age, right? Yeah. And when you look at all this tick list of, of nightmares, that those that's all like what Paul Bracken would predict for the second nuclear age. Yeah. Um, 
which is why I teach this. Cause like, even if it was wrong, we should be wary of it and you know, have this in our minds. And now it's coming to pass. So tune in next week for the Undiplomatic podcast exclusive news that New Zealand is developing a nuclear <laughs> <Yeah>. program. <laughs> this is, but this is an environment in which liberal states with liberal foreign policies are fucked. Mm. Like, an institution-free world or, mm. like, a world that doesn't re- – like, that's real politique and, like, the rule of law is for weak states, that is – Terrifying. Fucked. New Zealand nukes coming soon. When I – as a kid growing up, I always thought, man, I'd really like to live through, like, an interesting age. Well, we're living through, like, Henry VIII with nukes is what this is. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to armchair analysis. So the premise of this uh, segment is that we dive into an article that we thought was interesting, was crap, was good, was funny, uh, and we tell you all about it. Give us your reckons. And this week we're focusing on an old article from War on the Rocks by Mira Nap Hooper, who... Rap Hooper. Rap Hooper, sorry. She's She's a good friend. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Friend of me, at least. I don't know if she... She probably doesn't listen to the pod. (laughs) After I mispronounce her name, maybe not, but friend of the pod. Um, It's an old uh, article that popped up on War on the Rocks recently, um, and we gave it a read. And it's pretty topical given Van's recent trip uh, and the nuclear discussion we've just had. And essentially it focuses on decoupling. And the premise of decoupling is that when a nuclear state has short-range nuclear weapons... Allies will believe that America will step in to protect them if there's a strike because the rogue nuclear state here, North Korea, can't strike the American mainland. That has changed. North Korea now has long-range nuclear weapons that can hit the American mainland. And so there is a huge disincentive for the United States to strike back against North Korea if North Korea hit South Korea or Japan. Uh, and that means that the alliance, the incentives in the alliance structure start to break down. And the alliance members, South Korea and Japan, feel like they can't rely on the United States to protect them as, mu- as much. There's no mutual uh, reassurance. Um, and this is a familiar problem, Mira points out. It was experienced when the Soviets developed their nuclear capacity in Europe during the Cold War. Um, and the United States had a couple of solutions then, mainly expanding their conventional warfighting abilities. They developed a, a nuclear planning group, which gave allies a, a little bit more control over over nuclear weapons in that kind of theater. But those don't those solutions don't work anymore, uh, mainly because there's no single multilateral alliance like NATO in Asia for America to rely on to give that kind of like modicum of control back to allies. They're already conventionally superior to North Korea. North Korea is only going to use a nuke if they wanted to fight. So there's no kind of advantage to increasing. It's hard to see advantage from increasing massively conventional capacities. And and the United States has already withdrawn the obsolete theater nukes that they had in the region. So reintroducing those would radically increase tension. And that's all on top of the fact that Trump is Trump and he's mental uh, and is really terrifying the crap out of US allies acting unilaterally, making it clear that they can't rely on him. Mira suggests a couple of solutions. She says that um, the Trump administration and presumably any future administration should really focus on appointing high-level political appointees to roles where they can 
engage in dialogue with American allies in the region. Uh, she advocates for a presidential restraint, which, yeah. Not um, so much. Yeah. yeah. But these are really tough problems, and those are kind of like the only solutions that seem open to the United States in this kind of new period in Asian, uh, Asian-US nuclear relations. So it was a really interesting article looking at the incentives at play there. Second nuclear age shit. Yeah. yeah um, so this article, I mean, th- so she wrote this in 2017, yeah. beginning of the Trump administration, when the North Korea crisis was just starting to bubble up. and But it reads like it was written this week. Yeah. Like it's so prescient. It's so on point for like what's, what we've been dealing with this past like month or so. And it, it is a real problem with no real solutions. And the situation is like, I think, much uh, worse than what she kind of like intimates. It's a much harder problem even than she suggests. Uh, extended deterrence and the risk of decoupling and what measures you could take to manage uh, decoupling the, the process of it. That was that was literally what brought me to Korea. Like mm. that's what I was researching. Mm. And then I did a bunch of like tangential shit because whatever. And so this is like, the question, not just that's like animating me right now, but that is like the future of Asia itself hinges to a large degree on this this like narrow analytical question, um, policy question about like, how do you prevent decoupling, manage the uh, credibility, reliability of these alliances? And, uh, you know, the verdict, as I can see, is not very good. Um, reass- what, what, what I'm finding that I think policymakers know to be true intuitively, but is not well like researched, is that reassurance and what it takes to reassure an ally, like it works differently in different contexts, not just across nations, but uh, what I've discovered in this Korea trip is like across political parties, it works differently too within mm-hmm. nations. So you have multiple levels of incompatibility. So if you fly a nuclear capable bomber, and that's supposed to send a signal of deterrence to North Korea. There is a there's a, a narrow question of like, does that actually help deter North Korea or does that increase risks of nuclear war? Right. I say the latter, but you could argue that it's the former. You could argue that it's helping deterrence. But then separate from that question is what do allies think about it? Does this reassure the allies when you send a nuclear capable bomber? Um, and f- And the answer to that depends on like, how they perceive it. What do they care about, right? What's their like theory of security relative to like North Korea and how do they what's how does the alliance framed in their mind? And for South Korean conservatives, it is necessary but not sufficient to fly the bombers. They also demand this this was in the Obama era. Uh, they also demand redeployment of tactical nuclear weapons. Just to clarify, tactical nuclear weapons are usable nuclear weapons yeah. because they're lower yield. It's it's less mutually assured destruction-y. Still terrifying. Well, that's that. Yeah, like that's the that's the escalation ladder. Like yeah. that's the pathway to doom. Yeah. Because like once you open up that box, you it's can't like, fuck. close it. Yeah. Um, if there's been any theme from today, it's like don't open the box. Yeah. You know. So deploying the nuclear bombers for conservatives necessary but not sufficient. Tactical nukes. Um, they also urged the conservatives wanted a their own version of a NATO nuclear planning group, because their caricatured understanding of it was that that gave the Allies control of U.S. nukes, mm. and it's like, no. oh, that sounds pretty good. 
and <laughs> yeah, which is not which is not what it was. It was like a, a kind of tokenistic gesture. Yeah, it, it gave it gave it gave them like input semi control over like a handful of nukes yeah. that were based on their territory. Yeah, and so like you know, eighty ninety percent of U.S. nukes were still hundred percent under U.S. control, and the Allies didn't have much insight into that stuff. Yeah. But like the point is the conservatives want nukes, nukes, nukes in every way that they can get them. Mm. Um, the liberals, they might want their own nukes as a nationalistic thing. Um, they don't want U.S. nuclear bombers and that they fear U.S. entrapment because of bomber deployments, mm. because of the risks that it poses relative to North Korea. Yeah. So like you're going to fuck our security situation if you cause a war in the name of deterrence, yeah. ironically. Um, and so that's a problem for them, right? So that one move, this is just illustrative, but like that one move of a nuclear bomber deployment, you literally can't win on the Korean Peninsula because you're gonna have half the population against you and half of it for you. And so that's that's a problem in itself, separate from whether what are the risks that this tr introduces with North Korea. And this is a point that Mira makes is that to navigate these kinds of risks and incentives properly, you need credible, experienced, prominent diplomats. This is where people make a big difference. Yeah. So that's having credible ambassadors. It's having credible high-level State Department officials. And that is not the case currently. The ambassador in South Korea is not credible by the sounds of it. You, you he's he's to, loathed. He, everybody yeah. knows that he's like pro-Japan. He didn't want to be there. Yeah. He was trying to go to Australia. There are still positions unfilled at the State Department and the people who are filling them either are behind the times and don't know what's going on in the careers or are just kind of oblivious otherwise. And that that's where it is really terrifying because you need people who are who understand those kind of dynamics in order to navigate them properly and to paint with that kind of fine brush. What's scary about right now is that, I mean, there is no, everybody knows there's nobody with gravitas yeah. in the administration anymore. That's, that's obvious. But what's scary is that there are all these people who came from the establishment who are like legit dudes. Um, maybe they're conservative, so I disagree with them on a lot of shit, but like their credentials are unquestioned. These guys are carrying the water for Trump. Yeah. And it, in a, in a very direct way. And so it's not even that they are lacking gravitas. It's that they are not using their savvy for anything but levying Trump's demands on the allies. They have self-destroyed their own gravitas. There, yeah, there's a huge problem here. Fast forward, you know, a year into the future or something. We're, it seems very, very likely to me, especially coming out of these these talks last week, America is is the finger in the dike it's john mearsheimer the most correct thing he ever said was that america's presence in asia is like the great pacifier mm. truest thing he ever said um that's that is the case we are we're like holding back history in a sense south korea is going to go nuclear and because of that japan's going to go nuclear it's going to happen um and in the meantime we're just trying to keep the allies together and keep north korea deterred and to pull that off, which is like a pretty modest goal, we've got to have savvy people, yeah. smart people who know what the fuck they're doing. These, these are the stakes of the next presidential election. It's not just Medicare for all. It's a nuclear world. The most important question that the, the 2020 candidates could be asked that they're not asked is 
who do you plan to surround yourself with? Mm. And you can name people on your like advisory team if you want or whatever. You can name famous people. I did just give an indication of who's going to be in the seats running policy for you. Yeah. Because Trump didn't do that and look who we got. Yeah. All right, now it's time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So our first question is from Sean Wolfgang, who's a friend of the podcast, and thank you for all his coffees. (laughs) He's asking, is it worth considering an international affairs PhD program if you've already been working as a practitioner for a few years? Yeah, I mean, that is precisely what I did. I don't know how replicable what I did is, or how advisable it is. I feel like anybody who tries to do what I did is going to end up like screwing their lives up. But, but my life is really good. Like I've, <laughs> I've just fallen into it, you know, like I feel like some national security force gump, but, um, I mean, so like I got a PhD, I did it at night. I was a practitioner first. I had an established career and then I pursued a PhD. I pursued a PhD at a non Ivy league school. So like I was, a, it's a ranked school, Catholic university of America, but it's like a lower ranked school, uh, which you're not supposed to do. Um, it was like a qualitative politics program. So we did, I, I had stats from previous degrees, but like most political science programs train you to like think in terms of like regression models and statistical analysis. And that was not the emphasis at all in, in my program. So like I did all kinds of things that you probably, sh- that like nobody would recommend, right? Uh, my PhD, like I had uh, the GI Bill to like absorb the cost of it. The general rule of advice is like, don't pursue a PhD unless it's fully funded. So I had full freight tuition that I had to pay. And I was just lucky that I had the GI Bill to pay for it. But you're also not supposed to do that. So I've done all kinds of shit you're not supposed to do. Uh, You want to be influential in Washington? Should you move to New Zealand? Um, I think the advice would be no. I think you should be in fucking Washington. But it worked out well for me. I've never been more relevant, you know? <laughs> so like this is working out well for me, but like in all of these ways, I don't know if I could recommend this stuff for somebody else. So for the PhD question, we had a question like this before. It's really about like how passionate are you about the subject? There are in DC PhDs that are like practitioner focused. So SICE has a very good PhD program that's focused on on policy and strategy per se. So you don't have, it's not just the pure esoteric academic journal stuff. Um, That's not what it's training you for. It's kind of training you to be like a good Paul Wolfowitz or a good Donald Rumsfeld, you know, like good as in not evil. And so uh, not just effective. And so like there are, there are lots of programs like that. American university has something like that. The Catholic university program was kind of like that, frankly. And so there are like practitioner oriented PhDs. If you want, if you want the credential, if you want some future in like the think tank space and you want to do more than work in the bureaucracy, but it's not essential. Like if you're already in a practitioner role, like you're lucky, you know? So like one thing that you can do that I did, like I didn't think I was going to be able to finish the PhD, but I was like, fuck it. I'm already in like a good job. Like if this doesn't work out, no one's going to know. You know, I'm just going to like stop going to class or whatever. And then it ended up, I just eventually somehow 
I just kept going. So your advice is basically, yeah, just fuck it. Do what you <laughs> go for it. Well, yeah, try it, right? Yeah, try it. You, if you have just a job. keep running, Forrest. Keep running. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll see. Yeah, like, see what happens. I, I think right. it's worth a shot. Yeah. I was more ambivalent at the beginning, and then the more I talked, the more I, like, changed my mind. Yeah. I changed my own mind. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's yeah. scary. Gonna... <laughs> so the second question is from Anonymous, who asks, do you write for free? I'm just starting out as a journalist slash pundit, and at my level, it's hard to find places to publish, even harder to find places that will pay me. So, yeah, so I do write for free sometimes. Um, it depends on the venue, though. Like, um, there are some places that are like, high prominence that do not pay, like Washington Post, like uh, Politico Magazine. And so if you want to reach those audiences, which you should, especially if you're like a fucking journalist, you... <laughs> You have to do it for free. That's just the nature of it. Um, and you're, you're cashing out in the form of profile or attention. And the, but there are lots of places where I don't write for free. Um, and I'd say like probably like 60% of the stuff I write is compensated. But for the most part, I don't like solicit that. And I definitely didn't start out that way. So like in the beginning, everything I wrote was for free. I the I think I was writing for like a year and a half before somebody paid me something, and I didn't even know they were gonna pay me. And um, ever since then, for the most part, usually like usually a publication will contact me and be like, "Hey, would you be interested in writing this? Uh, we can give you X dollars of honorarium or something like that." And that's how like a lot of the compensation happens. I I'm actually not a great person to explain how you make a living writing because if that was my only income i would be poor <laughs> i get paid a yeah. lot or i get paid a lot as in frequently i don't get paid a lot as in money like I, it's not it's not adding up to a whole lot and then our last question from kim chan song asks who wants to kill the u.s alliance with south korea more trump or president moon Whoa. I'm guessing he's a South Korean conservative. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure Trump actually wants to kill the alliance more. Um, the, the whole like 500% thing, the premise of it is like, we don't need you and you need us, you know? And he said so much of this like allies are free riders stuff. So I think Trump does. And like Moon, it seems like he actually favors the alliance. He just doesn't favor it at any cost. So we'll, yeah, I think Trump. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Uh, I hope you like this episode. Glad to be back in the saddle. Hope you like what you hear. And if you want to back us, buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic. Catch you next time. Peace. <laughs>